Matthew 5 and Song of Songs 8. So we'll start with Matthew 5. This is the word of the Lord, and He has given us His word, His saints throughout history, because He loves us. And these words are true because they're His. So let's listen up to what God has to say. Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Song of Songs 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then in verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Well, welcome to RUF. Glad you guys are here. Uh, RUF is a Christian ministry on campus. We're here for Christians and non-Christians. And we're here to help you figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in all of life. Which is why we sometimes talk about topics that you don't hear talked about in church that much. I don't know if your church tradition talked a lot about sex and sexual ethics, <clears throat> but we're talking about that tonight. And my name is Willis Weatherford, and I'm the campus minister here. Uh, the one thing I want you to know about me is that I'm not a good person, but Jesus loves me, and he loves you, and that changes the way that we think about even sexual behavior. Um, I'm going to start with a quote here. Uh, this, this lady, Christine Emba, she's a graduate of Princeton. She's actually from Virginia. She's an author of a book. Um, not to my knowledge, a Christian. I don't think she's a Christian. She could be. She's not public about that if she is. But she's a Washington Post columnist. Actually, and based on what she said in the column, I'm pretty sure she's not a Christian. Uh, but so she, she wrote an article in 2022, uh, and it's titled, Consent is Not Enough. And uh, she kind of outlines the problems that young adults, her friends, face um, navigating the sexual ethics of our culture, of their lives, personal lives. And then she says this, an over-reliance on consent as the sole solution to all these problems that she talked about might actually worsen the malaise that so many people feel. If you're playing by the rules, the rules of consent, and everything still feels awful, what are you supposed to conclude? Which is an enigmatic question that we're going to kind of pursue for the rest of the night, we're going to look at the sexual ethic of WNL, of this place. Uh, as I understand it, and you can tell me afterward that I'm wrong, but let's look at it together. And we're going to look at it alongside the sexual ethic of Jesus, the biblical sexual ethic. Eros meets Logos. And as we go through here, I think any sexual ethic, by which I mean, like, how do I... How do I figure out what is right for me to do sexually? What is okay? What is good? What is good sex? And how do I pursue that? It has to answer the question, what can I do? And how do I know? Like, what can I do? And how do I know it's okay? 
has to answer that question. So tonight, three points. The floor, the ceiling, and how Jesus meets us in between. Okay, so the floor, the ceiling, how Jesus meets us in between. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help as we um, come to this uh, tender topic in our hearts. It's personal. It is, um, it's deeply personal. Um, we are, we're sexual beings. Uh, we have longings. We have guilt. We have shame. We have hope. Um, and Lord, you made us. And you made sex and romance and love. And um, Lord, thank you for telling us in your word the wisdom that we need to pursue those uh, in freedom and in Christ. Help us to see that, to see you more clearly tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, the floor. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. First point. The floor. Okay, so consent is, I would say, the law of consent, uh, the prevailing sexual ethic of WNL. Right? There may be other things. Uh, and first I want to affirm that, like, that's a good thing to have, like, consent as a rule. Obviously, you shouldn't seek sexual gratification from someone else if they don't want you to, right? So it's a good thing. But I want us to see how that's like a very bare minimum standard. Uh, we know it's the absolute minimum. It's basically like how not to go to jail, right? We know it's the bare minimum because we have to caveat it like a million ways. Whenever we talk about it, whenever like the trainers that probably came to your high schools or here to college that have talked to you about it, there's so many caveats. So like first we have to say, it's like not just consent, but like enthusiastic consent. Like it's gotta be super enthusiastic for it to be okay. Well, it's like, how enthusiastic is enthusiastic enough? And also, why do they get to tell you how enthusiastic you have to be in order for it to be okay to have sex? That's a little interesting. But also, the another caveat that we have to have is like this whole equality thing because you can't consent to something if you don't have an equal power dynamic, right? This is why we have these rules about like, you know, age and mental capacity and inebriation because there's an inequality there and there can't be real consent if there's that inequality. But so a couple of questions. Are any two people truly equal in all respects? Like in every way? What about like social status? What about wealth? You know, do they have to feel equal or do they have to actually be equal? And how would we know? Uh, and what about the people who are unequal? Like who do they get to have sex with? I'm just kind of poking at consent here. Uh, also, by the law of consent taken alone, uh, it basically can make anything okay. Like as long as it's consented to, there's no sexual act so degrading, objectifying, violent, that it couldn't theoretically, by the law of consent, be okay. Uh, another problem I have with consent, many people have noted this, it's actually a legal standard, not an ethical one. It didn't start when people were like, how could we help people have really joyful, happy, whole, satisfied sex lives? That's not how it started. It started in the courtrooms through litigation about rape, which isn't like, it is good that we have laws about this. That's a great thing. But can we really go to something that started in a courtroom and ask it to tell us how to pursue happy, healthy, joyful, romantic lives? Final thing, often in practice, consent makes women the gatekeepers. In reality, it just makes women the gatekeepers instead of calling men to take ownership to do what's right, right? That's a problem. To quote Emba again, she says, uh, more clarifications of consent 
ever more technical breakdowns of its different forms, won't rebalance power differentials, explain intimacy, or teach us how to care. Making the standard of consent our sole criterion for good sex punts on the question of how to conduct a relationship that affirms our fundamental personhood and human dignity. I used to drive past, uh, when I lived in Houston, I used to drive past this auto shop that had this just really ugly, scary dog chained up out front. It was like a classic junkyard dog, like big, mastiff, brown, chained to a tree. And it was there, obviously, to like deter thieves from stealing car parts. And it was probably pretty effective at that. Um, I think consent is like the junkyard dog chained outside your sexuality. Our culture says sexuality needs some protection. And like, so we're going to put this junkyard dog of consent there. But here's the thing. Your sexuality is not a junky old auto shop, actually. The analogy the Song of Songs uses is that your sexuality is a vineyard, something beautiful something valuable um, where grapes are tended delicious wine is made we need something better than a junkyard dog is all i'm saying consent falls short what might that better thing look like before we turn there um i wanted to say like i hope it doesn't sound like i'm like <sighs> gloating at this state our culture is in i'm not happy about it i wish consent was the sexual ethic that would get us where we need to go it's just not Right? So I want to suggest to you that the sexual ethic we long for, the one we need, must be better in at least four ways. Okay? I want to suggest that it must, it must affirm personal responsibility where each of us is called to take full ownership of our own actions and the way we treat others. Where we don't just have to like obtain permission, consent, but actually choose whether or not we'll seek... Um, whether or not we'll seek consent in the first place, right? Based on whether or not that action is right or wrong by our own judgment. Okay, so that's one thing. I also think it needs a clear-cut behavioral standard that will tell us whether actions are inherently right or wrong. I think it needs to be rooted in an anthropology, an anthropology of dignity, where humans are not opportunities for our sexual gratification, but infinitely valuable persons worthy of respect, love, and honor. And finally, crazy idea here. What if we required our sexual ethic to be based not just on keeping myself out of jail, but on something higher? What if we aimed a little bit higher, like love for the other, putting their needs ahead of my own needs? All this brings us to our second point, the ceiling. The floor is like the absolute, barely adequate, bare minimum of consent. And... No matter how we, ca how we caveat it, like I challenge you, if you think that our culture on its own has a better sexual ethic to offer than consent, I want to put up a straw man here. I want to hear about it. I would love to hear how, what you're hearing in your circles about like some sort of a sexual ethic. But just looking at consent as a big part of the picture, that's the floor. The ceiling, the thing we have to shoot for, the much better option is covenant. A covenant is a relationship of love and commitment that's way more binding than a promise and way more personal than a contract. Let me say that again. A covenant is a relationship of love and commitment that's way more binding than a promise and way more personal than a contract. So it's an agreement of how two people agree and decide and take an oath to love each other and like what they're going to do for one another and what happens if they break that vow.
So God invites humans to pursue covenant relationships with one another in marriage. This is why we take oaths on our wedding day. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, biblical warrant for this. Genesis 1 and 2, marriage is introduced as the covenant relationship within which sex can be enjoyed and is meant to be enjoyed. Exodus 20, God writes sexual faithfulness to one spouse into his law for us. 1 Timothy 5, sexual expression outside of marriage is forbidden and we're called to absolute purity towards one another. Here's what it says. Treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and all purity by extension, ladies. Treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers until marriage in all purity. Okay. The covenant nature of marriage is why we make vows. It's why we take an oath to people that we marry. So here's the ones that I gave, vowed to my wife, Mary, on our wedding day. Here's our vows. She said the same thing back to me. I, Willis, take you, Mary, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, to love, serve, and cherish, forsaking all others from this day forward till death do us part. That's a covenant oath. That's what that is. And implicit is the agreement like what happens if a spouse fails what happens if i have an affair if my wife has an affair right there's that divorce is an option at that point right but the covenant oath is made not as a threat but as a promise to pursue that sort of love for the other the exclusive commitment that allows love to flourish so let's look at a few ways that covenant succeeds where consent fails rather than asking are you okay with this in covenant, you bind yourself to another promising, before you ever ask them a question, to seek their good before your own. And to pursue them, to get to know them so fully that you can predict pretty accurately what's going to be good for them. This is very different than seeking your own good as long as it doesn't directly violate their stated preference. Another thing. Rather than placing responsibility on one party to be the gatekeeper, in covenant, both parties commit to safeguard their own and one another's dignity. Rather than treating sexuality as a meaningless transaction or a physical force like hunger, it honors what we all know. (laughs) We know sexuality is meaningful. We know it's not just a meaningless transaction. Covenant honors sexuality as a deep soul-body expression of our character as God's creatures. It means something, and Covenant recognizes that. So, we're going to look here at what Jesus says about how behavior uh, should look for people before they get married, for people after they get married. And as we do this, I want you to know, I've had a lot of questions on like, how do I conduct my relationship, dating relationship, future, present, uh, in light of, you know, logos, God's wisdom. We're going to look really focusing on that next week. Uh, This week, we're going to talk a little bit about that with regard to like behavior in relationships, but it's not so much about that, really just about behavior, whether you're in a relationship or not. Okay, caveats aside, here's the passage we're going to go to. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, this is Jesus talking, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members 
meaning body parts, one of your body parts, like your eye, then that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so we're going to kind of explain a little bit about that, but don't miss the objective standard that clarifies Jesus' sexual ethic is that anything that causes or leads to or flows from lust, lustful intent, towards someone we're not in the covenant of marriage with is wrong. Okay? He takes it from all these questions, like we'd like for the, li- for, for the Bible to have this list of like very specifically like naming body parts and like what can touch what and what can't, like all this stuff, and that would be weird. And the Bible doesn't give us that. It makes it really plain like sex is for marriage, but there's a lot of stuff that's not sex. The Bible doesn't give us crystal clear behavioral standards, but it tells us, hey, look at what's going on in your heart, right? It says, if there's lust happening in your heart, you've got to check yourself. Jesus calls you to turn away from that. And that's actually really, really good and beautiful. It's so beautiful because it causes, uh, like, one person in here is engaged that I know of. Everyone else is single in the biblical eyes. So, like, we're going to just assume everyone's single here. All of us who are single, it calls us to treat people that we're not married to, even if you don't know them, even if you just see them walking past on the street. This sexual ethic calls you to treat them as so holy, so full of dignity, so belonging to God, that their sexuality is so set apart from you that even looking without touching and lusting, without them knowing, is an assault on their dignity, is an offense against the testament of their existence. It's an attack on their God-given personhood. I think that's beautiful. Like, is there any, uh, any like, ethic of respect and dignity of human persons in that? The passage says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent, of course, ladies, not off the hook here. Um, Jesus is talking in the province of his day to men, but whoever looks, whatever woman looks at a man with lustful intent commits adultery too. But what does that lustful intent mean? What is that talking about? Okay, a couple things it doesn't mean. Noticing that someone's good looking, has an attractive body on its own, that's not lust. It's just part of being a human who can see, right? God made people beautiful, and if you notice that, that is okay. Uh, also, feeling attracted to someone on its own isn't lust either. It's just part of being a human who's relational and notices that other people are wonderful because they are. Right? So not lust. The lustful intent that this passage talks about has to do with what you do with those things. When you notice someone is beautiful, when you feel attracted to them. For instance, uh, staring for an impolite amount of time, playing out a fantasy in your head. Uh, all the way to pursuing them for some sort of a sexual or emotional encounter. This is what Song of Songs is talking about when it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Again, guys, you're not off the hook either. Not stirring up or awakening love until it pleases. It's what you do when you notice someone is attractive, beautiful. Okay. So, note that two biblical categories are the covenant relationship of marriage and not, which we'll call single. I don't really like single because it's like, are we any really single? Like we're in relationships, we're called to relationships, we're in the church, we're with our family, God is with us. But for like, we'll call it single, okay? Uh, Obeying this sexual ethic obviously looks different if you're single or married. Being in a dating relationship does not give you permission to start gradually kind of pushing the needle forward on sexual expression because there's no covenant yet. So, like saying, 
well, we had a really great date, so I let him kiss me. Or we have a really strong connection, so it's okay for us to make out, you know, sometimes, as long as we don't go too far. Um, you know, or we really love each other, so we're having sex. I'm saying these, this is pushing the needle forward where the, the Bible does not give you warrant to do that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. So, like, holding hands, um, hugging, you know, staring into each other's eyes, even kissing, like, all of these are capable of stirring up lust. And I think that all of these are also potentially open for someone who's in a dating relationship and they're Christians and they're trying to pursue each other. I'm not saying that if you kiss your boyfriend, you are necessarily definitely disobeying Jesus. I'm not saying that. I am saying you got to check your heart. You got to see what's going on there. And if that's leading you into lust or leading them into lust, you got to stop. Lust can happen in so many different ways. So we should be suspicious of our own tendency to kind of move the goalposts, right? So the one thing I want to say before we keep going is like, don't make these decisions alone. I, like, you were never meant to be like on your own, like, okay, let's figure out exactly how to do this in our relationship. Invite some conversation partners in, right? I was just talking with Anna about this. Like, uh, you need to have people watching over your relationship with you. Not as like guard dogs or guardians, but like friends who can you think things through with. Uh, older mentors you can help you think through like yeah I don't know what does this mean in our relationship when we do this together like is that okay is that lustful invite some conversation partners in that requires humility but it's good other thing I want you to see in this passage guys Jesus calls you to get serious so right he's talking about like tearing out eyes and cutting off hands and we're like whoa like seriously is that a metaphor Uh, he's saying your discomfort is the necessary cost of obedience you're not going to get to do everything you want, you want to do. Um, he's saying, to honor yourself, to honor the person you love, you've got to be willing to be uncomfortable, to do the hard thing. He's not saying actually cut off the body part, right? We know that for two reasons. One, Jesus clearly taught it's not body parts that cause us to sin. It's not like my eyes causing me to sin, it's my heart. Uh, second thing, if we cut off every body part that was involved in sin, like, there might be a whole lot left. <laughs> Just a lot of seriously maimed people walking around. He's saying obedience to Jesus will often look like willingness to do what is very painful, hard, in order to honor what is worthy of honor, your own body, someone else's. Examples of what this might look like. Might mean admitting to yourself you've got a problem with habitual sexual fantasy. Stop giving it free reign in your life and start confessing it to Jesus. Just moving the goalposts in your own mind of like, oh, that thing that I gave free reign, actually, that's lust. I got to stop that. I got to repent of that. It might look like admitting to a friend that you can't stop looking at porn and that you need their prayer. You need help. You need help. Like, you don't know how to beat this thing. You need help. It might look like refusing to kiss, make out with, have sex with your new boyfriend or girlfriend until you're engaged. They might think that's crazy. They might break up with you, which, for the record, would mean that. They don't want you so much that they were, weren't willing to wait for you. Or it might mean that what they really wanted was your sexuality, not you. It might look like breaking up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend because you just can't keep your hands off each other. And you might just say, hey, this is not, I'm not saying it's your fault or my fault, but we are not honoring each other here. We're not honoring the Lord. And if we can't get a handle on this, we've got to end this thing. Again, don't make these calls alone, guys. Invite a conversation partner in. I'd love to do that for you. Anna would love to do that for you. I know that against the backdrop of WNL, this is pretty radical, right? 
idea of doing this is pretty radical. But why should we expect that Jesus, who was celibate his entire life, like why shouldn't we expect that his sexual ethic would be pretty radical? And also, if we look at where we are and the pain it leads us into, I think we need something radically different. Will we try to follow him, or will we continue pretending that we can pretty much live just like everybody else? Pretty much. And it'll be okay. It'll be fine. Some of you are probably thinking, yeah, easy for you to say, well, it's like you're married. You, know, you get to have sex. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, it is awesome to be married, right? And have sex. That's great. I hope you all get married. And this sexual ethic is for married people too. Like, yeah, God gives married people freedom to express their sexuality together, but only with each other. You still got to express this sexual ethic of restraint towards everybody else in the world. Let me some of the sexual ethic Jesus calls you to, okay? Until the covenant of marriage, love others by refraining from all sexual expression. Anything that flows out from or encourages lust, arousal, as far as it depends on you, this honors other people, it honors your future spouse, it honors yourself, it honors Jesus. After the covenant of marriage, love your spouse by doing that to everybody but them. Refraining from all sexual expression with everyone but them. And with your spouse, floodgates are open. Pursue sexual intimacy, expression for one another's good, one another's joy, one another's healing from past sexual hurts. Learn how to care for one another, be generous to each other, and be honest with each other sexually and in all other ways, drawing from a love of God for you. That sounds pretty good, right? It is. <laughs> you can't get there on your own, though. Like, none of us can do this on our own. Uh, it's good that Jesus didn't leave us on our own, because on our own, we'd never make it. If you're like me... You've already failed this standard in lots of ways. Mentally, physically, with people, alone. Whether you've had sex or not, whether you're in a relationship or not, we all fail to fully honor the sexual dignity of others and fully safeguard our own sexual dignity every day. So if you're here and you're feeling bad, ashamed, because of how badly you've messed up, or if you're feeling kind of dismayed, like, this is impossible, like, how can I even begin to start doing this? Or if you're feeling hopeless because it feels for you like any form of romance is just out of reach for you, I want you to take heart and perk up your ears. Okay, so we've seen the floor. We don't really want that. We've seen the feeling. That feels a little unattainable. <laughs> Let's see how Jesus meets us in between. How he meets us in between. The covenant of marriage is not the most fundamental covenant that God calls his people into. God's relationship with us is a covenant relationship. Throughout the Bible, we see this. It's kind of hinted at in the Song of Songs. You saw this when it says, um, uh, love is the flame of the Lord. The word Lord is actually the personal name for God, Yahweh. Love is the flame of Yahweh. It's saying love is as strong as death. Love itself is derived from God. And what does his love look like? It looks like him moving towards us to define and create relationship with us. You see this throughout the entire Old Testament. Genesis 1, Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, Joshua 24. He's making covenants with his people, defining their relationship and loving them faithfully, even when they do not love him, even when they turn away from him and disobey him. Jesus, Luke 22, he says, this cup, representing his blood poured on the cross, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He wants a covenant relationship with you. How does he show his covenant relationship, his covenant love for you? Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, sexually broken, lusting, fantasizing, having sex we're not supposed to, looking at porn, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
took full punishment for all of our sin. While you're still looking at porn, Christ died for you because he loves you. While you're still hooking up, Christ died for you and your sin because he loves you. While you were still sexually fantasizing every night, Christ died for you and your sin because he loves you. He takes care of it. And he's faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to him. That's the way that you can find a covenant relationship with someone that you're married to and be faithful to them when you haven't been faithful in the past to Jesus. It's because you have a source of love which is faithful to you, Jesus. And he can cause that to flow out through you as you follow him. This also means, so it mean, this means that you are guiltless before God, okay? You are not defined by your sexual past. If you're like, how can someone love me and accept me when they hear what I've done sexually? They're just going to reject me. This is saying, actually, if that person is following Jesus, they're going to forgive you because God has declared you innocent. How can they see any different? But it also means he promises you his help in actually living this out now and actually following his sexual ethic. He knows you can't do it on your own. He doesn't leave you on your own. He doesn't expect or require perfection. Receiving his help looks like choosing over and over each time you mess up to strive towards his standard. To say, I know I can't meet it perfectly, but I'm going to make his standard my standard. I'm going to say that's what I'm shooting for. I'm not going to move the goalpost. I'm going to say that's what I'm shooting for. Trusting his forgiveness when you fail and trusting the Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus and heal your hurts. No matter how good you think you are, if you're in here and you're like, I don't do with any of that stuff, um, you've missed it. <laughs> Jesus said, your heart is where this happens, and it happens in all of our hearts. No matter how good you think you are, the standard of Jesus' covenant love, it exposes our need for him, our need for grace. And no matter how bad you think you are, the faithfulness of Jesus' covenant love means you're not defined by your mistakes, and you don't have to keep making them. So Jesus loves you. His standard is good for you. And we can figure out together what it might look like for you to follow that more faithfully in your life. So let's keep talking. I would love to have another conversation with you on this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for not leaving us on our own to try to make up for ourselves some kind of weird rule books that help us to produce on our own a sexual ethic that dignifies people. We just can't, Jesus. We've tried, we failed, we need your help. And Lord, we need your help to pursue this better option that you give us. How can we, how can we, how can we stop sinning? Lord, how can we say no to what seems so enticing and say yes to you, Jesus? How can we wait? How can we trust that you'll give us what it feels so out of reach right now? Jesus, we need your help when we ask that you would just come to us and remind us of your great love for us, your faithfulness towards us, that what seems impossible with you is, is possible with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There you go. Please stand and